So we're back in Galatians again tonight. And before we jump back in, though, I want to give you a uh, really special announcement of which I'm really excited about. If you uh, are been around since the beginning of this year, and you remember here at Red Mountain in particular, you'll remember that we uh, began the process of looking for a new assistant pastor. And as of this past Thursday, that process came to its conclusion. And I am, all of your elders are unanimously and excited to be able to tell you that we've hired Matt Clegg as our next assistant pastor. And um, I'm thrilled. Now, some of you might know that Matt has been here the last year as an intern and, um, or pastoral resident, if you like the more sophisticated version of that title. But the last year, Matt has been largely has been time, spending time preparing for ordination, studying, reading, talking with me about what ministry is like in the church, visiting uh, other churches, having lunches with people here at Red Mountain, going to Presbytery with me, uh, helping to oversee our growing uh, youth program and helping to organize our youth volunteers. And when I showed him the uh, job description for uh, the assistant pastor role, uh, he looked at, he read it and looked at me and said, I really couldn't imagine a better job description if I could write one myself. And uh, we got to, the elders got to meet with Matt and Lauren Thursday night, and we met for almost two hours, not quite, and we just talked and asked questions, and they asked questions, and it was a really wonderful evening. And um, I'm thrilled to be able to tell you that we are going to get to enjoy Matt as our next assistant pastor, and that'll begin formally September 1st just so you know. Uh, The main reason for that is he still has to get some things taken care of for his internship uh, before he can actually then pursue ordination as an assistant pastor here at Red Mountain. And uh, before I finish that, I also am under the impression that today is uh, Lauren's birthday. And I was told to say happy birthday to you. Not that anybody else has to, but... I was going to say happy birthday to you. We were thrilled that you're here. We're so glad you're going to stay here. Um, If anybody has questions about any of that, please come and ask me. I'd love to talk about it more. All right. Galatians. We're back here in Galatians chapter 5, and uh, we're nearing the end of the book. Uh, We got a few more weeks in this letter before we uh, move on uh, to something new. But as I've been trying to say each week that this is one of Paul's earliest letters written to a group of churches who were, they're unsettled, they were troubled, they were struggling to understand the gospel, which is what we mean by that is the good news about Jesus. Paul had spent time with them, he had preached the good news about Jesus to them, and in the course of time, others had different takes on that and opinions, especially other uh, folks who grew up Jewish And understood to some degree what Paul was saying, but kept saying, yes, you do need to believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. You also need to become Jewish. You need to adopt Jewish practices and beliefs and follow the Old Testament prescriptions. And Paul is saying, no. There is only Jesus, Jesus alone, and nothing else. 
And so these churches are in a bit of crisis. And the last two weeks, as we began looking at chapter 5, this whole chapter is really um, threaded throughout the whole chapter is the central theme that actually covers the whole letter, this idea of freedom. That Jesus has come to set us free. Free from guilt, free from shame, free from condemnation, free from trying to justify your existence. And what we've noticed the last two weeks, there are two main enemies to this freedom. The first enemy we would, we'll call legalism. Earlier in verse 1, Paul says, Stand firm and do not submit again to yoke of slavery. And he goes on and says in verse 2, he says, If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That is, to adopt the Jewish law in order to be saved, to be right with God. So that's the first big enemy. In other words, legalism is just another way of saying trying to be really, really good. Being moral. Living in such a way that God has to take you and accept you on the basis of your performance. But then the other enemy threat to this freedom we'll call license. So Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 5, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Sort of a street-level way of describing that is doing whatever you want. Living your life for yourself at the expense of other people. So there are these two enemies, these two threats to this freedom. One, being really, really good. The other, doing whatever you want. And the question, therefore, is how, if Paul has said earlier in verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, therefore stand firm in him. How do we do that? What does that look like? Why do we need that? Paul's answer here is in verse 16. The first verse of our passage tonight, he says, walk by the Spirit. How do you not fall prey to either of those two dangers of legalism, thinking that being a Christian is being really, really good, or license, thinking that you can believe in Jesus or whatever you want and do whatever you want and you're still fine. So what I want to do tonight is look with you at, first of all, why do we need to walk by the Spirit? Why does he say that? What is it about our lives and our current situation, this side of heaven, that makes that so necessary. And then second, how do we do it? So why and how, and then I'm going to try to finish with uh, an illustration that I hope uh, ties it together. So first, why do we need to walk by the Spirit? Look in verse 17. He says here, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What's he saying here? In short, he's saying the Christian life is a conflict. That the Christian life is a conflict. It's a struggle. And he's describing here, I'll go into more detail in a few minutes about what he means about the flesh and the spirit, but in short, what he's saying is that you are divided You are a divided self. That you are in conflict. That there are things that you and I both want to do, but don't do them. 
You do what you don't want to do. You don't do what you do want to do. And I think that's actually true for everyone, not just people of faith, Christians who trust in Jesus. But he's here describing that we are a divided self, that our desires and our longings are at war within, within our very selves. Just think for a moment about any given day, how fragmented you might feel, how torn you feel between perhaps two good things or better and a worse thing. We are torn and stretched and fragmented all the time. But before I move on and look at more detail, what is this conflict he's talking about? Where does it come from? I want you to hear a word of hope in the midst of this. Sometimes you can think that if there's struggle and there's conflict, that maybe that means God is not present. Maybe he doesn't really care about me. Maybe he's not that interested. And what I want you to understand, right at the outset, what Paul is saying is that conflict is integral to the Christian life. And the only place you need to go to really understand that is to go read the Gospels and look at Jesus' life. It was full of conflict. And God brought life out of that conflict. So when you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you find yourself divided, struggling, there's conflict in your life, What I want you to think of is not that God isn't working, but that conflict is actually evidence that he is working. And we're going to look at that here in a moment. So what exactly is this conflict that he's talking about here in verse 17? If you notice, he mentions the spirit and the flesh. And in fact, the spirit here is capitalized with an S, capital S. And That's as it should be, I think. Because in view here, Paul is talking about not just your internal uh, disposition or something. He's talking about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit occurs seven times from verse 16 through 25. This whole passage is about the Holy Spirit. And this conflict actually has three, three dimensions to it that I think we need to at least try to get our minds wrapped around, to understand what it means to walk by the Spirit and why we need it. All right, so I'm, 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 uh, I'm asking you to kind of put your thinking caps on here a little bit. And if, if some of what I'm trying to tell you is just sort of doesn't make sense, that's okay. But try to hang in there and um, see if we can uh, make it as simple as possible. What's the big picture to this conflict Well, the big picture to this conflict really begins back in in verse 4 of chapter 1 when Paul writes that Jesus came to rescue us from this present evil age. That phrase, this present evil age, really is Paul's shorthand description for life this side of heaven. That we here and now live in an age or a time under the power of sin. Under the influence and the lies of Satan. That we are actually dead in our trespasses and sins apart from Jesus. That we're spiritually dead. And we cannot rescue ourselves 
That's the present evil age. It's not that we all are walking around and sort of neutral towards God, but that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, he says, essentially, we are all either in Adam and the consequences of his rebellion against God, or we are in Christ. And there's no third option. This is the big picture that the Bible paints for us, that we are either as I said, dead in trespasses and sin, or we are made alive in Christ by God. Those are the two realms or arenas of life, if you will. And that big picture really does explain where does this conflict come from. Paul also, in in conjunction with the writer of Hebrews, there is this present evil age, life this side of heaven, and then there is the powers of the age to come. That is, the future new heavens and new earth that we are promised, the new creation. The good news of the gospel is those powers of the future, of the age to come, have been brought into the present, in the person and work of Jesus. So now, this big picture of this conflict really is the overlap between the powers of the age to come brought present in Jesus in real life and real history and this present evil age, the realities of a broken world ravished by sin. That's where this conflict comes from and then manifests itself in our own lives. So how do we think about this conflict personally in relationship to Jesus? How does he these powers of the age to come, the freedom that he brings, how do you get in on that? And Paul, again and again in this letter, has told us the way you get in on that is that you, through faith in him, you become united to him. I've mentioned this in the past. I'll mention it again. If you asked Paul what is a Christian, he would say a Christian is in Christ. He uses that phrase more than almost any other phrase to describe what it means to be in relationship with God, that you are in Christ. And if that's the case, Paul again and again tells us, and we see it here in verse 24, look what he says. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says of himself, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. What's he talking about? What's he saying is to be in Christ means that you are connected to what Jesus did on the cross. That what happened on the cross now is true of you. So when Jesus died on the cross and he died to sin, in other words, his death meant the end of the power of sin. It broke the power of sin. His resurrection broke the power of death. That all guilt and shame as a result of sin has been expended, exhausted in him. That therefore to be in Christ means that you are now dead to sin. You participate in his death and his resurrection 
So that his death is your death. That his resurrection is your resurrection. And this is where the end of the conflict comes and the resources to engage in this conflict comes. That you are now in him. And he says here, Paul says in Romans 6, parallel letter in this, in this theme, he says that to be in Jesus means you're now dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. In chapter 3, we, we looked at for a couple weeks how to be in Christ means you're also now part of God's family, that you are now a child of God. So there's the big picture, and then there's our participation in Christ, and then to narrow down in our own daily experience, what does this conflict sound like? Well, a great place to go to get the Bible's description is in Romans chapter 7, where Paul is reflecting on his own Christian experience. And he says, I don't do what I want, and I do what I don't want. Which is why Paul here says to walk by the Spirit. It's a daily, hourly battle of walking in the Spirit and not returning to the flesh. And we're like addicts. That's what he's describing here. That to to become a Christian means that you begin to see your problem and you have found the rescue And you begin to see, I need help to not relapse. That's what he means by to walk by the Spirit. But notice here, even though this is a daily, hourly battle of, I don't do what I want. I do what I don't want. I have desires that are in battle and conflict within me. There is still good news. Because if you belong to Jesus... That your flesh, those desires that eat away at you, that create havoc in your life, that either lead you into a life of despair and insecurity or a life of pride and self-righteousness and domination of other people. There's disintegration in both directions. To belong to Jesus means that your flesh has been put to death, that there is now hope that what used to rule you doesn't have to anymore. Now, before we move on to look at the how, how do we do this, I just want to draw out for you. If you look here, Paul describes what are the works of the flesh, and he gives a number of examples, and then he ends and he says, he, he describes that anything like this, so it's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but then he also goes on and describes the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 to 23. And if you remember when we began, I mentioned there are, the, there are two enemies to the freedom that runs throughout this whole passage, the freedom that Jesus came to give you. License and legalism. Being really, really good or doing whatever you want. And this is important to get. Because for many, many people, they think Christianity is doing really, really good. Trying to be better. Being more moral. But the sad reality is, if that is your conception of Christianity, of being really good, 
in order to get God to be pleased with you or to get other people to be pleased with you, you will always look down on other people. You will nurture seeds of self-righteousness. And you have to. Because your life is built on your performance and how it stacks up. You can't but look down on other people because that's how you know you're doing okay. This is what Paul means when he says, where, you know, where, where do you think these things come from? Rivalries. That's competition. That comes from comparison or dissensions or divisions or envy. Those are all not only but definitely do manifest themselves in religious people. Or take the other threat to this gospel freedom of license, of doing whatever you want, a life of sexual immorality, of impurity, of sensuality, of idolatry. That is, setting your affection and your loyalties and your desires on anything other than God. Thinking that anything that's created in this world could actually bear the weight of your trust. See, all of these are descriptions of two ways to live that most people tend to think are available to you. Either, I am my own master. I am my own Lord. I can do what I want. I am on the path of self-discovery. Or, I am on the path of being really, really good. Earning favor. Gaining acceptance. But if you'll notice, the fruit of the Spirit is neither of those. The fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in those who belong to Jesus. Now, how do we get this? How do we do this? I think it's important for us to notice as we move on to the how we walk by the Spirit, the metaphor that Paul uses to describe the work of the Spirit. He uses the idea of the fruit. Now, that's, a, that's an agricultural metaphor. You have to have rich soil. You have to have nutrients. You have to water it. It has to be tended. It takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. But when all that happens, it produces a bountiful harvest of fruitfulness. And so think about this for a moment. The imagery here is akin to what John writes in John chapter 15, when Jesus, talking about himself, says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Think about it here. This is the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit of the vine. The imagery here is to have fruit, you need rich soil, which is to say the work of Jesus. The Spirit plants us in the work of Jesus and takes his life and manifests it in our lives so that Christian holiness isn't a bad word. It's actually becoming more like Jesus. It's becoming more truly human. It's becoming who God created you to be. So how does this happen? I want to give you four R's, and I mean for this to be as as practical as I can make it. 
I'm going to tell you the four R's and then comment briefly on them and try and um, tie us up. The first R is you need to recognize the conflict. You need to recognize. Second, you need to remember your new identity in Jesus. Third, you need to realize the calling you now have. And fourth, you need to respond sensitively to the Spirit. So you need recognize, remember, realize, and respond. First of all, recognize the conflict. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I've talked about this already, but you need to name the conflict in your life. Paul invites you to do this actually simply because he says, in anything else like these things I'm describing, works of the flesh, you need to be, you need to pay attention to it. You need to learn to recognize it in your life. Secondly, you need to remember your new identity. Remember what I was saying earlier, that to be a Christian means you now share in all that Jesus has done. Paul described himself in this way. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he says, in the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see, the power of sin has been broken. The Spirit is now bringing about new desires and longings, even as they clash with your old ones, with your divided self. And then third, we need to realize the calling that you've been given. He says here in verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In a similar way, in, verse, in chapter 13 of the book of Romans, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then he asks us a question. In another section in his letters, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's calling you to a life of faith and trust in Jesus. And what about respond sensitively? Here he says in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Here's what he's trying to help us to see. How do you become sensitive to the work of the Spirit in your life? A writer, Sinclair Ferguson, who actually, uh, quote on the front of your bulletin, puts it like this. As his sons and daughters, we know we belong to his family. We learn to put on our, li- our lives everything that is not in keeping with the family lifestyle. That is what it means to be led by the Spirit. We begin to be sensitive to him. He is the Spirit of our Father and our, of our Savior. We avoid anything that would bring shame on the family name. Our father's smiles come to mean everything to us. His frown would be our greatest loss. Now, this whole idea of what it means to walk by the Spirit, the the two things I want you to hear, and then I want to close, it's a conflict. But you're not alone in that conflict. And he gives us directions. We need to recognize we need to remember. We need to, what's the third one? We need to realize and respond. And I want to give you a story to help you to kind of put all this together. There was a, a, a theologian of the last century. His name was Oscar Coleman, and he was a German. And in reflecting on the events of World War II, painted a wonderful picture to think about what Paul's describing here. 
if you remember back to the events of World War II, D-Day is known as the, the, the decisive battle of World War II in 1944. That was the battle that ended World War II. However, VE Day, which is the day that, that war actually ended in Europe, didn't happen for another year. And in the midst of that following year after D-Day, there were still plenty of battles raging in Europe. There were many deaths. It was violent. It was terrible. And that proved, that's a very good picture, way to think about the Christian life. That in the death and resurrection of Jesus, D-Day has happened. The decisive event in history has taken place. And yet we wait for VE Day. The day when these other battles that still rage on in our lives and in our relationships and in our communities and our cities are ended. And in fact, not only that, when we begin to see what Paul is saying here from that perspective, that means that in the meantime, these battles that we still wage, and they are painful, we enter into that conflict with hope. Because what Paul tells us in the end of Romans chapter 7, when he's talking about all of this conflict, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. So I want to leave you again with why do we need this? Why do we need to walk by the Spirit? Well, because there's this conflict. To participate in Jesus means to live in fellowship and communion and in the strength that he provides. And how do we do it? Well, we need to recognize the conflict. We need to remember. We need to realize. And we need to respond. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that as we reflect on this passage and the riches that are in it, I pray that the, the simple basic things would land with us and that by your spirit, you would lead us to walk by the spirit, that we would know what it is to be united to Jesus, that we would know that the conflicts that we engage in and experience in our own lives would not lead us to discouragement and despair, but would lift our eyes to Jesus and the freedom that he has come to bring about in our lives. Would you do that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.